Hello, and welcome to episode four of Real Spies, Real Lives. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. Today's episode is about how sometimes as a writer, your subject matter makes you pause and question whether you should put those words out in public. I call it second-guessing. When you're a writer whose works have a political bent, there comes a time when you second-guess what you've written. Now, don't say, well, don't write about politics. That's naive. And there's this thing about writers called paradigm of self. I write about politics because it's part of who I am, and to ignore that would be inauthentic. My writing would suffer as a result. My series, A Perfect Hatred, which began publication in 2018, deals with right-wing extremism. Granted, 1990s right-wing extremism, but the sad thing is little has changed. The names and terms may have been altered, but the hate unfortunately remains the same. In book one, End Times, which came out in April 2018, one of my protagonists confronts a skinhead, today he'd be called a proud boy, who tried to carjack her. He responds with racist and anti-Semitic rhetoric. It's a scene essential to how the story unfolds. Did I like writing it? No. But I felt it was necessary, that it was a triggering moment for the whole story. In book two, Bad Company, which came out in August 2018, one of the antagonists is a self-ordained minister in a racist, misogynistic, and anti-Semitic religion called Christian Identity or Identity Christianity. It's real. Google it. He gives a sermon to explain to his Aryan warriors, yes, that's still a term used, whom they're at war with, the U.S. government blacks, feminists, and Jews. It was difficult to research, to read the sermons of real Christian identity leaders, to listen to recordings of their so-called sermons, and it was a harrowing scene to write. It took me weeks to finish that single scene. Eventually, I trimmed the length and split it into two chapters, separated by other action in the story. Even as a writer in love with her own words, I recognized the reader would need a break from darkness. Well, why write the scene at all? When I first wrote it, I wanted to show how fringe beliefs we'd always attributed to nut jobs had moved close to the mainstream. Today, they've made it all the way into the mainstream, but that's another story, I promise. Sometimes a failing of political thrillers is that the bad guys are one or two-dimensional. They're the bad guy. What more do you need to know? Well, to make the characters believable, they have to have dimension, a motivation for evil even as protagonists are motivated to be the good guys. I couldn't have this character urge his misguided followers to go out and fight a perceived enemy without his giving them a raison de guerre. This character is fictional. His 
church is fictional, even if his religion is not. The hate speech is, unfortunately, authentic, gleaned from my research. The scene, however, served its purpose. It furthered the story. Otherwise, I'd have cut it long before now. I second-guessed that scene after I first wrote it. After the rough draft, it took me years to look at it again and edit it. Even after, or perhaps especially after the time that had passed, I knew that scene, as distasteful as it was, was necessary. But... After what happened on October 27th, 2018, at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, these two not-yet-published scenes in Bad Company came back to mind. Lest you think that's self-centered and more than trivial, listen up. I'm a big critic of a certain politician in high office whom I shall not name, but whose rhetoric is sometimes short-sighted and frequently dangerous. I abhor the fact there were three events of domestic terrorism in my country that October week in 2018, none of which were labeled terrorism, but I believe in calling a shovel a shovel. All three can be connected directly or peripherally to that vitriolic rhetoric. So I second-guessed my second-guessing. What if those two scenes I wrote originally 20 years ago provided fodder for someone to do something violent? What if people thought that hate-filled sermon by the antagonist represented what I believe? Should I delete those two scenes? I thought long and hard about that last question overnight. The next morning, I even opened the files for those scenes with the intent to delete them. But in so doing, I saw the gaping hole that action would leave in the story. The story, after all, is to show hate for what it is, for what it has done and can do. To show why we should fight hate in all its forms. I would not be true to myself as a writer if I didn't show hate for what it was, what it can do and has done, what it did two years ago to 11 people who had gathered to worship in a country where they had the right to do so freely. The scenes remained. What I did do was beef up the author's note to that volume of the series. To wit, certain troubling events contained herein I've derived from my research. In light of recent real occurrences in October of this year, you may wonder why I included them at all. These fictional events are, unfortunately, authentic. The attitude's real. But we need to accept these attitudes continue to exist. They in no way represent my personal beliefs. I present them to show the danger facing our country. Again, still. Then I changed the book's dedication, which had acknowledged the public service of government employees, to this. 
This book is dedicated to the memory of people who gathered at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on Shabbat, October 27, 2018, as they had always done, but who were murdered by hate. Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Mallinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Brothers Cecil and David Rosenthal, Mrs. Bernice and Mr. Sylvan Simon, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, Irving Younger, Never Again, Never Again. Say those words over and over until they drown out hate. All right, that's done. Thanks for your patience and understanding. If you're interested in my series of Perfect Hatred, the fourth and final book came out this past April. You can head over to my Amazon page, amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan, and take a look. Now, let's have an excerpt from my recent novella about the 2016 election. Yeah, more history and politics. A change for the better. A Change for the Better, Chapter 30, Height of Power Greg Rogers had become disillusioned with the U.S. government during a brief stint in the Army, where, it seemed, the brass only wanted to avoid armed conflict. He'd begun going to gun shows, drawn by the deeply conservative sentiments expressed there about President Jeffrey Randolph's liberal administration. The rhetoric skipped the Arbust administration and soared to giddying heights during the Gary Ibori administration. Gun shows were like home to Rogers. Rogers found among the attendees and the vendors a certain brotherhood, a shared dislike of diversity and inclusion, of uppity women and faggots, of diplomacy and negotiation. The people at gun shows believed in strength and in demonstrating that strength. He felt his burgeoning beliefs validated and came to the same conclusion many of them had. The whole corrupt administrative system of government in America needed to be destroyed, not fixed, not amended, destroyed. He wanted to fulfill his hero Grover Norquist's promise to reduce government to the size where I can drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the bathtub. And Rogers had begun to write about that. He couldn't use words like destroy or tear down, preferring instead to pontificate about deconstruction, about the benefits of a small government about running government like a good business, which had a softer, more appealing ring. What he wanted was nothing less than what Vladimir Lenin had done after the Bolshevik Revolution, a dismantled bureaucracy and the Tsar in a shallow grave in the Urals, especially after Gary Ibori had become America's Tsar. Early in the Ibori regime, Rogers' blog and newsletter caught the attention 
of the conservative conspiracy theorist and self-declared journalist Arthur Bennington. At the time when Bennington was kick-starting his alternative to the liberal media, Real News Network. Roger's military experience, scant though it was, his talent for excoriating liberals, brought him instant credibility with Bennington and Real News Network's subscribers. Bennington hired him after a brief audition as RNN's foreign policy and military expert. Halfway through the Abori administration, when Bennington had a series of strokes, Rogers became the head of Bennington's growing empire, but continued to be its most prolific reporter. In truth, his stories and expertise came from his continuing visits to gun shows to refresh his repertoire of conspiracies, the hidden agendas he wrote about. In his articles, however, he imbued those visits with an aura of mystery, referring to them as top-secret think-tank meetings, to which only the privileged few, like he, were invited. He alluded as well to his access to the highest level of the military and intelligence communities, really veterans he encountered at gun shows, high on oxy and paranoia, and reliving real or imagined battles. His readers ate it up. Bennington's board of directors didn't question Roger's sources because his articles were the most popular on their website. And when he joined them, he brought with him his blog followers and newsletter subscribers, who were now willing to pay a steep price to read his work on the Real News Network site. Ad revenue soared, providing Bennington and Rogers with a comfortable lifestyle. He went back to the gun shows as well for the various vendors of military memorabilia, especially Nazi militaria. Rogers kept his personal collection closeted in his home, allowing only his most trusted friends and associates to see the iron crosses, the SS pins, the uniforms, some of which he wore on occasion, the rank insignia, the flags. The president-elect had particularly admired one flag, said to have been in Hitler's office in the Reichstag, and Rogers intended to give it to him for the president's private suite at his Hilton Head resort, discreetly, of course. One item given to Rogers by a member of Aryan Nation was his prized possession, a small gold death's head pin, a skull atop two crossbones, the symbol of the SS units who guarded Nazi concentration camps. His Aryan Nation friends swore it was from a great-uncle who'd murdered Jews at Auschwitz. Rogers wore it every day. Not showing, naturally. He couldn't be that obvious. Yet. The point was to work the agenda behind the scenes until such time as the public had become inured to it. Rogers always wore a sports jacket, ostensibly to disguise his paunch, and inside, pinned to the lining over his heart, was the Totenkopf, the death's head. He was the only one who knew of this adornment. He, and unknown to him, the escort he'd hired for a post-election celebratory debauch. 
while he'd slept off the drugs and sex. She'd searched his clothes and cloned his phone. An escort who wasn't an escort, who'd bribed the real escort to take her place, an escort who'd given Mai Fisher a detailed report about Roger's anatomy and clothing, a download of everything copied from his phone, and a tidbit about the curious piece of antique jewelry the escort had found. She'd taken numerous pictures of it, close-ups from different angles, with a camera whose resolution would render every dent, scratch, and flaw accumulated over the years. The pictures allowed the directorate's fabrication staff to create a perfect replica, down to an accurate patina, but with a slight difference. Embedded in the safety pin-like clasp was a tiny microphone and a small but powerful transmitter. Within the skull itself was a battery that would last a year. A year was all my Fisher needed. In the presidential suite at Harlan Continental Hotel, reserved in Roger's name and with his credit card, thanks to the escort who wasn't an escort, the guard stripped Roger's and his bodyguard naked and posed them in the rumple bed in sexually suggestive positions. Alexei took the pictures, coaching the guards what to place where. Mai watched until it bored her. She picked up Roger's jacket, inspecting the label. The guy believed in sucking up. The label read, Harlan Line of Fine and Distinctive Clothing for Men, made in Vietnam. Her hands in nitrile gloves, she turned the left side of the jacket out and saw the Totenkopf pin there, where her operative said it would be. From her own study of history, Mai knew the men who wore the Totenkopf were proud they killed people, saw it as their calling. The man she was setting up and others like him would, too soon, be at the height of power in the United States, and a former employee of hers had had a hand in making that happen. She wished he were still alive so she could have killed him. Mai removed Roger's Totenkopf with care and made certain she put the replacement one in the exact position as the original. Satisfied with her work, she tossed the jacket toward a chair where it slid to the floor and made the scene read as if it had been thrown there in a hurry to get undressed. Alexei finished the photography and Mai handed him the Totenkopf. He frowned at her. I thought you might want to dispose of this, she said. Perhaps with the memory of a father and two siblings killed at Stalingrad by Nazis, he took it from her with a wicked smile. He placed the pen on the marble floor of the entryway and flattened the gold beneath his heel. He picked it up and headed for the suite's bathroom. What are you doing? Mai called to him. Why, I'm going to toss this in the toilet and piss on it before I flush it. DNA, Alexei. I'll pee carefully. The guards laughed at that and began gathering up the two men's clothing. Swap their underwear, Mai suggested, and the guards laughed again. The toilet flushed. Mai heard water running in the sink, and Alexei returned, drying his hands on his own handkerchief. To speed things up before the drugs wore off, 
Mai and Alexei joined the guards in redressing the unconscious men. When they finished, they placed the two in wheelchairs and wrapped their torsos in shawls, draping some material over their heads for a disguise. They left the hotel through the presidential suite's private elevator and entrance and returned to Penn Station. A conductor, who was a directorate informant, arranged for them to roll the wheelchairs into the Acela's first-class car with minimum exposure. They posed Rogers and his bodyguard in their seats, in sleeping postures boarding passengers would ignore. The drugs used on them left them susceptible to suggestion, and Mai murmured in Rogers' ear, planting memories of a post-meeting interlude at a Manhattan bar for which she'd arranged plenty of witnesses. She, Alexei, and the guards went back to the terminal and exited to 8th Avenue, where the limo had waited. An hour later, they were on Mai's jet, headed to D.C. Epilogue January 21, 2017, Washington, D.C. In the Secret Service limo, informally known as The Beast, while on the way to some post-inauguration celebration, Greg Rogers, President Kermit Harlan, and the President's Chief of Staff, Milo Thames, kept up an ongoing strategy meeting. Mostly, it was Rogers and Thames, while Harlan scrolled through comments on his Twitter feed and complained about the crowd numbers at his inauguration. Harlan's trophy wife, a former Lufthansa flight attendant he'd knocked up years ago, stared out a window, her face expressionless, her eyes brimming with moisture. I say we get our new UN ambassador to hit the Secretary General hard about the directorate, Thames said. Despite the FBI director's claim he never said such a thing, we need to push it with de Cruz. Reiterate that unless we get that briefing about the directorate, we'll shut off the money to the UN. That'll get his attention. Yeah, Harlan said. You guys said this directorate thing would help me crack down on the lying press. I need it. Maybe we can get some good shit on the Randolph bitch once and for alls. Put her in cuffs, right? Harlan laughed, echoing his favorite chant from the campaign. He turned his attention back to his phone and muttered to himself, Put her in cuffs. He smiled as he scrolled. We can do that, Rogers told Thames, both of them ignoring the man they'd gotten elected. But I'm going to get someone started on deep background on DeCruz. There's got to be something he doesn't want known. Since we don't have access to the directorate yet, you can't use the FBI or the CIA, especially since the FBI director is being a shit all of a sudden, and the CIA director pulled his resignation stunt. Don't worry, Rogers said. I have other sources, companies we used at RNN, and there's that cabinet secretary's brother and his private security firm. We'll have the directorate in our bullpen soon enough. A two-pronged approach, Thames said. Good idea. Of course it is. Now, let's go over the schedule of the executive orders, Rogers said, but held up a hand when his phone signaled he had a text. Without hesitation, because so few people had this number, hell, even the president didn't have it yet, he opened the messaging app. The picture he saw almost stopped his heart. He felt it flutter in his chest, a rapid tattoo that made him dizzy. He read, I'm watching you. 
There's plenty more of these. Thumbs trembling, he sent back, What the fuck is this? The answer? Your worst fucking nightmare. Tell me who you are, he sent. He waited for an answer, his hand squeezing the phone. The blackouts after his drinking binges had become more frequent lately, but he would never... Would he? He sent his message again and got an unable-to-deliver message indication. Rogers, you okay? You're white as a sheet, said Thames. What? Yeah, yeah, fine. The beast stopped at the celebration venue. Jesus Christ, President Harlan said. Put a fucking smile on your fucking face, which I paid for, by the way. Rogers thought the president had spoken to him, but Harlan had directed the command to his wife. The smile she'd made good use of in a first-class cabin appeared, but her eyes couldn't lie. The End This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio. Copyright 2020 by P.A. Duncan. All rights reserved. Tune in next week.